0: go to the Lord in prayer, and we will dig into the feast of His Word. Father, we are thankful for Your election of grace, that You have chosen us to be a people for Your possession. We're thankful that uh, You have kept for Yourself a remnant that will not bow the knee to bail, that will not run headlong after the world, but that will remain faithful to You and Your truth. And had You not left to us a remnant, had You not chosen us, we would have all resembled Sodom and Gomorrah. There would be none left. You have been kind to us. You've chosen us out of the world. We love You because You first loved us. You've made us Your people. And You've given us Your Word. And now as we come together as a church to hear from heaven, we pray for help. We pray for understanding. We pray as the psalmist did pray that You would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word, that Your glory would radiate forth and we would love You and be transformed in the image of Your Son. Amen. Alright, if you uh, have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4. And the verses that I want to draw to your attention today are verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And if you have a bulletin, you'll see that the title of the message is The New Self in the World. Unfortunately, it's going to be part 1 of part 2. I just can't seem to get through these verses without uh, just going too deep. So, I hope that... uh, These verses will be as rich to you as they have been to me in my own study. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We We've finally come to the last chapter of this little letter after, I don't know, eight eight months or so since November. Just digging deep into this glorious letter and all the truth nuggets that Paul has laid out for us here. And uh, we come to the very end, the final chapter. We'll spend a few more weeks and we'll finally conclude our study of this little letter. Paul wrote this letter around 62 A.D. uh, from a Roman prison to the church at Colossae. And he did so because of the heretics there, right? They were propagating an erroneous Christology. They were purveying Christological errors a different Jesus that posed a great threat to these believers in Asia Minor. So Paul wrote this letter to defend them against that heresy. Now this letter then is primarily preventative. It's not corrective. Paul's not writing to the Colossians because they have been deceived. He's writing to protect them and defend them from being deceived. It is a preventative letter. So it's very applicable to us because us in this room, I would assume, are not deceived. That's why we're here this morning, to hear the Word of God. That's why we believe the Gospel. That's why we're evangelicals. We believe the, evangel, the Evangelion, the Good News, the true Gospel. But Paul's words are very applicable for us in Colossians. I think we've seen that, haven't we? As we've worked our way through this, we've seen how practical what Paul said 2,000 years ago is for us 2,000 years later. So Paul writes a preventative letter to the church at Colossae. The first two chapters were focused on the sufficiency of the preeminent Christ, and opposed to the insufficiency of man-made religion, of the false teaching being propagated by the heretics. Jesus is sufficient to say... Jesus is supreme. He's not one of many beings who are simply little gods, but He is the true God. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. And salvation does not come through some mystical higher knowledge being offered by the spiritual elite. Salvation comes by faith in Christ. All that we need for salvation and sanctification is found in Jesus. That was Paul's message in the first two chapters. But then we get to chapter 3, and Paul has transitioned a little bit, starting in chapter 3, from doctrine to duty, from theology to practice. Paul transitioned to the Christian life. His focus became sanctification. Sanctification. And as you know, Paul gave us kind of three steps in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 3. Three steps for sanctification. Okay, three simple steps. Fix your mind on heaven, put off sin, put on righteousness. Righteousness. That is the formula for Christian growth. We fill our mind with biblical truth. We put to death the sin that remains and we pursue righteousness, righteous virtues. Paul has affirmed that we have become new creatures. That's his message. You and I, our old self died. We've been raised to new life with Christ. We've put on the new man, the new anthropos, the new man. We're new creatures. And that new... Identity then should issue in a new life. We need to live in a way that is consistent with who we are in Christ. But as you know, Paul kind of changed gears a little bit when we got to verse 18. He switched from Christian virtue to how that plays out in the home. How that plays out in the home. You see, the Gospel transforms our relationships. It transforms our relationships. If your Christianity is nothing but theoretical head knowledge, it isn't the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible radically transforms our life and thus transforms the way we relate with one another. Paul dealt with the home, but now, having delineated God's design for the home in chapter 3, verses 18 to 4, 1, he transitions now to the world. Here's what we look like in the home, and now here's what the Christian looks like the world. Let's read these verses together. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. In the beginning, God created man, and He created him in His own what? His own image. He made him in His own image. And a part of being in the image of God is that we are relational beings. God is a relational being, right? He's a Trinitarian, uh, tr- a trinity of persons and has been so from all eternity. And so He made us to reflect that image and to be a relational being. We are made for relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. In Genesis 2.18, right after God makes man, He says it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. God made us for community. Community with other people. It's interesting if you go to that passage... God. in one sense Adam's not alone in the garden, is he? Adam has God. He's in perfect communion with God in Genesis 2:18. And yet from God's perspective Adam is still alone because he needs other image bearers with whom he is to relate, with whom he is to be in community. So we're created for relationships and all of our relationships can be simplistically divided into four categories, four categories. There is our relationship with God. there is our relationship with our family. There is our relationship to the church or other believers, and there's our relationship to the world or the laws, those called outsiders in verse 5. And then all of these relationships carry responsibilities, right? We've seen that. Our relationship to God, we need to fix our minds on heaven, we need to pursue virtue, we need to do all that we do in the name of and for the glory of Jesus. That's our relationship to God. We've seen our relationship to our family. Our relationship... So our family is that husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Parents are to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves are to obey their masters. And masters are to treat their slaves with fairness and justice. And of course we saw our relationship with the church. Verses 12 through 17 as Paul is explaining to us the various virtues of the Christian life. These virtues affect the way we relate within the local church. We're to love one another, forgive one another, strive for unity with one another. We have been transformed and so have our relationships. But now, starting here in verses 2-6, to Paul shows us what the Christian's relationship looks like to the world. What our relationship and responsibility is to the world. And what is our responsibility to the world? What is it that God expects of the church and of Christians in relation to the world? We know the answer to that, right? We know. God's responsibility laid upon us for towards the world is that we reach the world with the Gospel. That is God's call upon the life of the Christian. That we take the Gospel to all nations. In fact, everything, MacArthur has rightly pointed out, that everything we do, everything we do in the Christian life can almost be perfected in heaven. Okay? So, worship. We worship now, but our worship is imperfect, isn't it? When we get to heaven, we're going to worship with perfect hearts and perfect voices, right? Praise the Lord for that. Our worship will be perfected in heaven. We can fellowship with one another perfectly in heaven. We can do many of the things that we do in the Christian life toward God in heaven perfectly. But one thing that you will not be able to do in heaven is evangelism. Evangelism. There will be no unbelievers to evangelize in heaven. That, then, becomes the primary purpose for the church on earth. To worship and glorify God through the extension of His kingdom in the world, through the proclamation of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Right before our Lord ascended to heaven, what did He do? What was His last word? Matthew 28, right? Go therefore and do what? Make Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them, teaching them, etc. In Acts chapter 1, we find another account of that great commission. Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you are to be My witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. We're commanded to make disciples. We're commanded to be witnesses for Jesus, His Spirit-empowered witnesses. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are called to be a witness for Christ. That's one of the primary reasons the Spirit comes upon us. This mission is not just for apostles and prophets and pastor teachers and church leaders. This mission is the mission of the whole church. Every believer is called to be a witness for Christ. So we're called to reach the world for Christ. We're called to influence the world for our Savior. But how do we best do that? How do we best do that? That's what we want, isn't it? We live in a community where there are people who are broken, people who are on their way to hell, people who do not love Christ people whose lives are broken because of their sin, and we want to reach this place for Christ, don't we? We want to see this community of Syracuse turned upside down by the gospel. So how can we best do that? How can we best reach the world for Christ? In these verses, Paul gives us three ways. Three ways by which we can effectively reach the world for our Savior. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, and evangelistic speech. Evangelistic prayer, evangelistic conduct, and evangelistic speech. We'll look at the first one this morning, and we'll look at the other two next week. So with that said, let's consider the first way that we as believers can reach the world for Christ. And that is evangelistic prayer. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. That word, devote, proskartereo in the Greek, means to attend constantly, to continue steadfastly, to do something with intense effort. You ever think about your prayer life that way? That it takes intense effort? Of course we know that. That's why it's hard to pray, right? That's why we often neglect prayer. Because it does take effort. But Paul says we are to devote ourselves to prayer. This is a call for a constant attention to the discipline of prayer. It's to do as Paul told the Thessalonians, right? In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without what? Ceasing. Pray without ceasing. In Luke 18, Jesus taught that we ought to Always pray and not lose heart. Always pray. We're to pray all the time. Always pray. Pray without ceasing. Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to sit in our prayer closets on our knees uh, with our eyes closed 24-7, right? That would demand that we neglect our other God-ordained responsibilities, right? We have people to serve. We have the gospel to preach. We have jobs to work. We have lives to live. We can't sit in the closet with our eyes closed all day. So what does Paul mean then? When Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. When Paul says, pray without ceasing. How do we do that? How can we know if we're doing that? How can we measure that? We talked about this in Sunday school several weeks ago. Basically, what Paul's calling us to is an attitude of God consciousness. That we are to always be in tune with the Lord. Always be in fellowship with God. Their minds, back to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, are to always be fixed on things above. Christ is always to be central in our heart and our minds, and we're to just always be communicating with our God throughout the day. It's an attitude of God consciousness. So, you know, we should always be in an attitude of prayer. We see an ambulance driving by, our hearts just say, Lord, be to that person. We hear good news. We should give thanks to God in our hearts. All day long, as things are happening, our minds should always be focused upward, focused on heaven, fixed upon God. So Paul's calling us to an attitude of God consciousness. But how do we do that? How do we best cultivate in our own hearts a constant attitude of God consciousness? Again, I gave you some steps in Sunday school several weeks ago. Let me refresh your memory this morning. First of all, we should have set times for prayer. Set times for prayer. Matthew 6.6, Jesus says, "When when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. There's a call for private, secret prayer. In the Old Testament, Daniel at one point went to his room and prayed three times a day. Talk about defying tyrants. I think he did that, right? He was commanded, the old people there were commanded to worship nothing but the statue, and he goes and he prays to his God three times a day. Even our Lord Himself would often slip away to secluded places to be alone and pray. And if Jesus needed to do that, how much more should you and I need to get alone and pray? So we should have set times for daily prayer. We should be like our Lord. We should get alone. We should be like Daniel. We should do as our Lord told us and seek to be alone with God at specific times of the day. John Calvin said, unless we fix certain hours in the day for prayer, it easily slips from our memory. That's true, isn't it? It's true. If you don't have times in the day in which you set apart specifically for prayer, it's very unlikely you're going to pray at all. Right? You're usually not going to pray. You're going to live your life godlessly, almost like a practical atheist. Living your life like an atheist. However, if you fix certain times in the day for prayer, you're more likely to pray all throughout the day. It creates an attitude of God consciousness. So set specific times for prayer. Now, if you can do more than once a day, that would be great. But realistically, most of us have jobs and families and children running around screaming and throwing their diapers, and so it's hard to find lots of time for prayer. But at least once a day, try to get alone with God. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Try to get alone with God and pray. I find that works best for me in the mornings. It's quiet. Keith makes me get up when the alarm goes off. If I don't get up, I'll hear it from him later. And so it helps me to pray in the mornings. But you may need to pray at night, maybe when everyone goes to sleep. Maybe it's for you, it's when you put the kids to take a nap, put them to bed at noon, and you pray. But whatever... The case may be, we need to set times for specific prayer. But secondly, pray before each meal. Pray before each meal. I mean, if you do that, you're going to at least pray three times a day. And If you're like me, it'll be a lot more than that, right? We're always eating, aren't we? We live in a culture where we just eat all the time. Bag of chips here, a little candy bar there. Imagine if we prayed every time we eat. We'd be in good shape. We'd be a people devoted to prayer. So pray before each meal. You have your family together at the lunch or dinner table? Pray. If you're at the office and you're eating your little lunch in the break room, pray. Pray in your own heart. Pray before you eat your meal. Thirdly, pray with your family during family worship. What in the world is family worship? That's a foreign idea to our culture. But brothers and sisters, we should be regularly engaging our families in the worship of God. Don Whitney says, "Our God deserves to be worshipped in our home. He does So let us worship God in our home. If you're weekly, a few times a week, three to five times a week, having specific times for family worship, that's another time a day that you'll pray. I mean, imagine if you just prayed, you had a prayer time in the morning, 15, 20 minutes. You pray before each meal, that's at least four, well, more like five or six. At least four, though. And then you pray for family worship, that's a fifth time. You have five times a day you're praying. It doesn't have to be lengthy periods. Martin Luther said, I've got so much to do, I have to spend my first three hours in prayer. Martin Luther was a monk, okay? We're not monks. We have lights and jobs. So I'm not expecting you to pray for three hours, okay? Uh, if you do that, you'll probably fall asleep anyway. So you won't stay awake. That's the next point. But, I mean, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, five times a day you're praying. See that? And then one more. Number four. Pray before you go to sleep. Pray before you go to sleep. Pray with your kids before they go to bed. Pray with your spouse as you fall asleep. I've done that. I used to pray my family to bed, sleep, and and, uh, oftentimes I would have to. The way I would know it's time to stop praying is I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Now it's time to go to sleep, right? But I would pray the family to sleep. They're going to bed hearing the things of God. And so begin your day with God and end your day with God. Start with prayer and end with prayer. And then, number five, pray all throughout the day in your own heart. And you're more likely to do that if you do the first first four steps. Steps one through four will logically produce step five. Okay? Pray certain times throughout the day. You're likely to pray in your own heart all day. And that's the goal. That's the goal. To always be in communion with God. Warren Wiersbe said, We should be constantly in fellowship with God so that prayer is as normal to us as breathing. Does that describe your prayer life? Is prayer like breathing to you? You just couldn't imagine going a day without prayer? What do you live like a practical atheist? If the only difference between us and the atheist is that we go to church on Sunday, something's wrong. We should long for communion with God every day. Jonathan Edwards said this, How can you expect to dwell with God forever if you so neglect and forsake Him here? Right? What makes you think you're going to want God hereafter if you don't want Him now? you don't want Him now, you're not going to want Him then. You're not going to want Him then. So examine your heart. Do you really love God? Do you really long for Him? Being a Christian doesn't mean we wear t-shirts and bracelets and go to church on Sunday. It means we love God. That is the basic definition of a Christian. And if we love someone, what do we want to do? We want to spend time with them, don't we? Right? I mean, imagine if I said I love my wife and I never even looked at her sure about that no love wants communion it wants time together right so if we love god if we love him we're at least going to desire to some degree communion with him through prayer prayer is a sign of love for god so that's the command to prayer or you could say the constancy of prayer even the the frequency of prayer how often should we pray all the time right all the time but now, secondly, I want you to see the condition of prayer. The condition of prayer. How? In what condition should we pray? Go back to verse 2. Colossians 4, verse 2. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Keeping alert. The word, gre-garo. That's what it means. Stay awake. Be alert. Be on the watch. Faithful, effective prayer demands that we wake up and be alert. I mean, no one can pray clear, effective prayers falling asleep. That's why I told you, right? When I'm praying my family to sleep, I know when it's time to stop. I can't just... I'm uttering the same things and my kids are like, Daddy, what did you just say? What are you talking about? So no one can pray effectively in their sleep. We need to pray with alert minds. We need to wake up and pray. Jesus told His sleepy disciples in the garden, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation." In other words, get up. Pray. Have a sense of urgency. You know, it's interesting that we have two groups in the garden. We have Jesus, and we have the apostles. Okay? Both, there's great temptation laid upon all of them. But what we find Jesus doing is praying, sweating drops of blood, praying earnestly to the Father. We find the disciples sleeping. And guess what happens? Temptation overtakes the disciples and they run away like cowards. Jesus boldly goes to the cross and bears the wrath of God for the sin of the world. You see that? Prayer overcomes temptation. But a lack of prayer leads to temptation and temptation leads to sin. Perhaps the reason we sin so much is because we pray so little. Because we sleep too much. We need to get up and pray. Get up and pray. But not only that, this also demands that we be alert in our prayer and that we know what we're praying about. Have you ever prayed and you just thought, I just really don't know what to pray? I mean, that's kind of why we don't pray, I think. We really don't understand what we're supposed to be praying. And we end up doing, as Don Whitney says, saying the same old things about the same old things. Just say the same three or four lines, and in Jesus' name, amen. But we need to be alert. We need to be praying specific prayers. We need to be alert to the needs around us. We need to be alert to the temptations that are overtaking us. And we need to pray with specificity, with clarity. We need to know the needs of others. In Ephesians 6.18, Paul said, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We don't want to pray lifeless, vague prayers. We want to know what the needs of the saints are. We want to pray for them. So the condition in which we need to pray is that of watchfulness. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. But thirdly. We see the attitude of prayer. The attitude of prayer. Go back to verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. An attitude of thanksgiving. The attitude with which you should pray is thanksgiving. Now, we understand how major of a theme thanksgiving is in Colossians. I don't have to rehash all of that for you. You've seen it. But just briefly, let me point out some verses. Go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Paul's praying for the Colossians. Look where he starts, verse 3. Colossians 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God. That's where he began. He prays for the believers at Colossae. We give thanks to God. Go to chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 7. Verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude thankful. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Three times in verses 15 to 17 we see the importance of thanksgiving. Colossians 3 verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17: Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keep alert, and do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Always be praying and thanking God. Remember First Thessalonians 5:17: Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Right? Every day is thanksgiving for the Christian. Every day is thanksgiving for the Christian. We should be thanking God always we always have need for thanksgiving because we always have reasons for thanksgiving. I mean, every good gift comes from above, from heaven, from God. We should be thankful for both natural blessings and spiritual blessings, for common grace and special grace. The fact that you have life, the fact that you don't have a disease, the fact that you're not dead, the fact that you have money and a place to live and clothing, you should be thankful. And then for the fact that God has chosen to save us, Christ died to redeem us. I mean, are these not reasons to be thankful? Are our hearts not moved to be thankful as we meditate upon all that God has done for us in Christ? We've got to be thankful. The opposite of that is ingratitude, complaining, murmuring. Thomas Watson said, murmuring is the devil's music. Murmuring is the devil's music. Just grumble and watching bands. Right? That's what it is. The Bible says do all without rumbling or complaining. Now, we all have that down, don't we? Right? Of course not. We're great at complaining. I think my spiritual gift might be complaining. But But we're supposed to do everything with thanksgiving, right? The opposite is ingratitude. Romans 1, Paul says, they weren't thankful. That's, That's a mark of ungodly people. They're not thankful to God. They don't acknowledge God. But we should be thankful. And not only is every good thing from God, even our trials, even if you're enduring a difficult time in life, Even that trial is for your good and is much better than what you deserve. Anytime you have breath in your lungs, you're sucking in grace. It's mercy. So we have reason to be thankful. We've got to pray with thankfulness, Thanksgiving. And then fourthly, we see the objects of prayer. The ones for whom we should pray. Look at verse 3. Colossians 4 verse 3. Paul adds, praying at the same time for us as well. Praying at the same time for us as well. The objects of prayer in this case then would be other believers, other Christians. This is a call for intercessory prayer. Prayer on behalf of others. You know, in chapter 1, Paul prayed for the Colossians, but here he desires that they pray for him. The great apostle. I mean, imagine how some church leaders might think of themselves today. I get on a pedestal and these people are just here to hear me talk for an hour and if I don't get done in an hour they throw something at me. No, church leaders should be like Paul. Love his flock. Love the people of God and ask them for prayer. Right? We can't do this alone in the Christian life. We need others to pray for us. There's constant trials and temptations and struggles and difficulties. And when people ask us how are we doing, what's always our answer? Very well, I'm good. And how many times we, when we say that is that not really the case? We should be more honest with one another. People can't pray specifically for us if we're not sharing specific requests and being honest about our condition. We need to share our requests. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that he needed the people of God to pray for him. And so we often find in his letters requests for prayer. For instance, in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul wrote this to the believers in Rome. Now I urge you, brethren... By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Pray for me. First Thessalonians 5:25. He wrote simply, "Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us." We need a share request. Even the great apostle Paul needed prayer. Ephesians 6: Same thing. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. Pray for all the saints, and specifically pray for me. Pray for me. That's why we do what we do on Wednesday nights. We gather together and take prayer requests. That's a glorious time, isn't it? We can just fellowship with one another, hear the Word, and then share requests together. If you don't come on Wednesday nights, I would highly encourage you to do so if it's at all a possibility. We need to be praying and sharing requests with one another. Then he says here, praying at the same time for us as well. And notice the us here is Paul and Timothy, probably. Okay, so the first verse, first two verses, Paul introduces Timothy as his companion. And so the us here, the plural pronoun here, is probably Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy needed prayer. And Paul and Timothy were preachers of the gospel. Right? They were church planners, apostles, and evangelists, and pastors. So not only should you pray for the people of God in general but you should pray for gospel ministers in particular All right, I need your prayers I covet your prayers as your pastor you should pray for me my spiritual growth the good strength and health of my family my perseverance in the ministry So pray even for church leaders so that's the ones for whom we should pray but now finally notice the content of prayer the content of prayer what is it that we're to be praying about what is it that we're to be praying about what are we to pray for? When we pray for the believers, what should we pray for them? You know, often what we do is this. Lord, please heal Aunt Susie. You know, her fingers hurting. Please help my cousin Jeffrey fund a job. You know, Lord, please you know, provide more income for my auntie, May. That's the kind of things we usually pray. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But notice the content of Paul's request here. There's two requests. One in verse 3. 1 in verse 4. Look at verse 3. Pray that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison. Pray that God will open to us a door for the Word. This is a, a request for evangelistic opportunity. That God would give us an opportunity to proclaim the Word of God. Paul knew that God was sovereign over all the affairs of men. God is sovereign even over opportunities for evangelism. So Paul requests prayer for them. And this is really important for Paul because where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's in prison. Paul's not moving about as freely as he has in the past. It's a little harder to share the gospel in prison sometimes. But they couldn't stop Paul, could they? Couldn't stop Paul. They let him out, he preaches the gospel, plants churches, they lock him up, he's got a prison ministry. He converts the guards. They couldn't stop Paul. This guy's relentless. They stone him to death and he gets up and walks 15 miles to the next town. This guy was unstoppable. He was relentless. So Paul's in prison and he knew that if he was going to have opportunities there to share the gospel, it was going to be God's sovereignty in opening those doors. Max Anders wrote, Paul knew God can open doors of opportunity even for those behind prison doors. Right? Paul saw every circumstance as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Did we do that? We do that? Turn for a minute to Philippians 1. Watch this. Philippians chapter 1. Paul in prison as he writes the letter of Philippians as well. And at this point, it would be easy to say, man, I'm just done. I mean, I'm persecuted. Things aren't working out. Jesus didn't give me my better life, best life now. But look what Paul does Philippians 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How about that? They lock me in prison, but the gospel can't be in prison. I'm in chains, but the gospel's never in chains. My circumstances turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Have you ever thought that about you? How are my difficult circumstances? How can they turn out for the greater progress of the gospel? How might the Lord use this to advance His kingdom? Verse 13... So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Look at that. The whole, all of the the, the guards are hearing the gospel. If you read the end of his letters, it seems likely that some people from uh, some higher up positions were converted. Uh, believers are being encouraged to preach the gospel. Paul's imprisonment is for good. It's for good. And of course in Acts 28, go to Acts 28. This is Paul's imprisonment from which he writes both Philippians and Colossians. He has made his way from Jerusalem and Caesarea and finally all the way to Rome after a shipwreck. He makes it to Rome and in the providence of God, doors are open. So Paul asks the Colossians to pray for open doors and notice how God opens the doors. Go to verse 23 of Acts 28. 28 verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. So he's in a Roman prison, but he's got some freedom. They're letting him stay in a lodging with a guard who's watching him. And large numbers of Jews are coming. And he's explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by things spoken, but others would not believe. Then you go all the way down to the end. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Did God open up a door for Paul? Absolutely. Jews and even Roman soldiers hearing the Gospel, there in Rome, God opened up a door for the Word. And notice that Paul, back to Colossians 4 now, notice that Paul doesn't pray that God would open up the prison doors, let me out, Lord, stop the persecution. No, God advanced the Gospel, no matter the cost, even if it cost me my life. And why can he say that? Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ. That's why. For me to live is Christ that dies. And my whole purpose in life is Christ. And if I die, I win. Because I get to be with Him. It's a win-win situation. We can't lose. We can't lose. Warren Wiersbe said, Paul did not ask for the prison doors to be open, but that doors of ministry might be open. Glorious. Isn't it? How do you pray? You pray, Lord, please fix my circumstances. Make them better. Or you say, Lord, open up a door for the gospel? Use this opportunity for the gospel to go forth. That's how we ought to pray. <clears throat> Even in the midst of a Roman prison, Paul's concern is the gospel. And we should have that same evangelistic heart as well. That same heart. In America, we won't share the gospel because we're afraid of the way people might look at us, afraid we might look stupid, might say the wrong thing. Here's Paul in a Roman prison, and he won't shut his mouth. He can't stop this guy. So we should pray for ourselves to have open doors for the Gospel. We should pray for other believers to have open doors for the Gospel, and we should specifically pray for other church leaders, evangelists, pastors, missionaries, church planters to have doors for the Gospel. We should pray for our brothers and sisters in other nations that are taking the Gospel there at the risk of their life that God would open up a door for the Word, for the Gospel to go forth. Now of course be careful what you pray for, right? It just might give you what you ask. You pray for a door, you better be ready to speak. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul said, A wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. I love that. That's how it works, isn't it? God usually, when God opens a door, there are many adversaries. Fruit comes through the midst of adversaries. That's the way it works. It's been commonly said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's through persecution that God... Grows this church. There's always adversaries. There are adversaries at the clinic every Wednesday when we go. Catholics wanting us to just go on, go home. There's going to be adversaries in your life as you're faithful to speak the gospel. So we need to pray for open doors, for grace to go through those doors, and we need to be willing to accept the cost when we do. Because it comes at a high price. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul requested something very similar to the Thessalonians. He wrote, finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. you ever done that? Somebody says, how can I pray for you today? Pray that God will give me an opportunity to share the Gospel and that it will go rapidly and be glorified. When's the last time you requested prayer like that? So he says, that the Word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. Or not all have faith. So pray that the Gospel goes forth and that God protects us from wickedness. God protects us from wickedness. We should pray that way. There's nothing wrong with praying about your health. Right? We should do that. God cares about that. nothing wrong about praying for a job, financial provision. But we need to pray for opportunities for the Gospel. Maybe we have such few opportunities to share the Gospel because we're not praying and we don't really want them. Ask the Lord for open doors. And Paul wanted a door open for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Without a door open, there would be no one to proclaim Christ to. That's what Paul wanted. He's always wanted to preach Christ, the mystery of Christ. We've talked about that word mystery before, the word mysterion. It refers to something hidden and now revealed. And Christ Himself is the mystery. Christ is the mystery. The Old Testament predicted Christ. It typified Christ. It promised Christ. It prophesied Christ. But the New Testament puts Him on full display in His glory. The Old Testament contains Him in types and shadows. The New Testament presents Him in its fullness. We have the full and final revelation of Christ in the Bible, specifically the New Testament. That's what Paul wanted to preach. He wanted to preach Christ. He wanted to preach the glory of His person. The fact that He's fully God and fully man. He wanted to preach the glories of the substitutionary death of Jesus, that He bore the wrath of God for sinners and appeased holy justice. He wanted to proclaim the good news of His resurrection, His exaltation, the promise of His second coming, and the news that salvation is by faith in Christ. Alone, this is what Paul wanted to preach, the mystery of Christ. And he wanted to preach it even in jail. He even goes on at the end of verse 3 and says, in fact... For which I have also been imprisoned, he said. I've been in this The gospel that has me in these chains, I still want to preach it. They can't shut Paul up. Then in verse four, he goes on and mentions one more request. So he wants to open doors. But one more in verse four. He says, Pray for me that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So the first request is for opportunity. The second request is for clarity. Gospel clarity. The word fenerao means to make visible, make manifest, make known. That's the goal, that we would clearly explain the Gospel to people. Because if they're going to be saved, they have to understand it. But if we're going to clearly communicate the Gospel, what does that demand on our part? We have to know the Gospel don't we? We can't share the gospel if we're ignorant of the gospel. That's why in Sunday school, we're going over a lesson that tells us what to share, what to proclaim, what to preach, because we need to know what the gospel is so that we can clearly and effectively communicate it to the lost. And Paul knew that. Paul knew the importance of a clear gospel presentation, and for this reason, he prays for gospel clarity. Remember back in Ephesians 6, Paul requested prayer for himself there, and he went on to say this. He said, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am also an ambassador in chains, and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we pray for open doors, we pray for gospel clarity, and we pray for gospel boldness. Boldness. You say, well, it doesn't take a lot of boldness in our culture. Share the gospel, but it's getting worse, isn't it? It's getting worse. It's only going to keep getting worse, more likely, unless God intervenes in sovereign grace and brings about a great reformation, but America is under judgment. As God abandons people to their sin, they become more and more hostile to the things of God and more and more hostile to the people of God. So we're privileged now that we can still preach the gospel without being in prison. So maybe take advantage of that. Maybe we we'll be bold when it's easy because it's going to come a time when it's hard. And if we're not bold now, we're not going to be bold then, are we? And proclaim the gospel. So pray. Pray that God would open up opportunities for the gospel for yourself, for others, and specifically for gospel ministers. And pray that God would grant you gospel clarity and gospel boldness. That's a way by which you can reach the world for Christ. That God hears the prayers of his people we can reach the world through evangelistic prayer. But does it stop there? Is that it? We just prayed that we're done now? No, right? Well, there's more to it. There's more to it. And next week, we'll look at verses 5 and 6 and consider two more ways by which believers can effectively reach the world through Christ. But for now, let us content ourselves in this, that God has chosen sinners like us people like you and me to be a means by which His kingdom will go forth. Isn't that amazing? You know, we ought to be in hell. Not only does God save us from hell, He doesn't just save us from hell and stick us on a shelf somewhere and hide us, but He chooses to use us to bring other people into the kingdom. What a wonderful privilege! Are you taking advantage of that? May we be faithful to reach the world for Christ through evangelistic prayer, knowing that as we pray according to His will, He hears us and gives us what we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being ministers of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ, messengers of heaven. What a glorious message you've given to us, and we don't want to hold it in. We don't want to, it's just too glorious to keep it to ourselves. We really do love Jesus, and we really do want others to hear about him. We want his glory to reign supreme and spread rapidly and be glorified. So we pray that You would help us as a church here at Christ as King. That we would be an evangelistic people. Where so often churches are content to just gather together and pray and read and study and talk and fellowship and stay in their holy huddle, they're not willing to reach out to the world around them with the gospel. I pray that that would never be the case here at Christ as King that we would love our lost neighbors, our fellow image bearers, people who are broken and people who are confused and deceived and being fed nonsense by the culture. And we have the real solution, the real hope, the true message from God. And I pray You would give us grace to be faithful in proclaiming that to the world. And oh Lord, that You would use us. That You would do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think through this church, through our prayers, through our endeavors, and that You would turn Syracuse and the world upside down for Your glory. Amen.